Ruth, why are we sitting in this hotel room in Memphis? <laughs> because I didn't want to drive to St. Louis again. <laughs> Halfway. You'll hear more from Ruth in a future episode about her background and how she came to be involved in this project. But for now, all you need to know is that she's a full-time journalist and my co-producer. In this episode, we're going to walk you through the day of Elizabeth's murder with help from two retired Creve Court detectives who worked the case in 1990. Then, in episodes to come, we'll talk about what happened over the next 33 years of the various investigations. This case has taken a lot of twists and turns. But first, Ruth and I need to explain what Elizabeth and about a dozen other people were doing in the chapel so early on a Monday morning. We had some other things to talk through and record anyway, so we met in Memphis, which is about halfway between St. Louis, where I live, and Birmingham, where she lives. Again, no one has ever been charged in Elizabeth's murder, but one of the central mysteries police had to tackle was how so many people were around her the morning of her death, both before and after she was killed, but no one saw anything incriminating. So today we start to zoom in on the details of the unsolved murder of Elizabeth McIntosh. This is True Believer, Episode 2, The Chapel. One quick note before we get into it. Throughout this series, you'll hear us refer to people mostly by their first names only and that's to protect their privacy, even those who were suspects in the case. But there will be some exceptions, such as people who have agreed to be interviewed for this series, higher-level administrators at Covenant and in the police department, and some people who have since passed away. Well, I think it's important for people, before we get into the basics of what happened, to understand Elizabeth's regular routine and and why she would have been on campus in the early hours of the morning. Elizabeth worked on the house cleaning staff, and her job most mornings was to clean the chapel. So she would get up at 4 a.m., throw on some work clothes, go clean the chapel for a few hours, normally till about 7.15, give or take. She'd go back home, get cleaned up, do a Bible study, a few other things, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, she had class at 9 a.m., Right. Her roommate, Chris, says she had a very regular schedule. So um, we we know that essentially she did the same thing almost every morning. She'd been working on campus in order to pay for school. Before we talk about the timeline of the morning of March 26th, let's just talk about the chapel a little bit. It's very small. It's um, So, I mean, like a lot of old-fashioned churches, right? It's kind of the same size on the top and the bottom. The top is the main sanctuary, And the bottom is all the other stuff, and they kind of cut it up into whatever way. So what we're going to do now is walk through the events of March 26, in some cases at a minute-by-minute level. We're relying on people's firsthand recollections of the event. And so we either have either talked to somebody directly or are relying on sworn statements to the police. So... You know, of course, there's some inaccuracies in in how people remembered things at the time for lots of super reasonable reasons. But the reason why it's also important to work through all of this is because it shows that almost everyone knows exactly where they were. And then it becomes important who didn't know where they were or doesn't have an alibi at points in the police process. It also maybe strikes people as odd that people are up in the middle of the night, but If you've ever hung out with anybody on a university campus 
And then I would also say if you've ever hung out with anybody religious, there is sometimes like a culture of like staying up way late into the night, not going to sleep, sometimes for good reasons, <laughs> sometimes because you're cramming for a test. Um, and so the, the timeline does sound a little odd to people who work nine to fives. After the scene was discovered and the police were on campus, one of the things that Tom, the guy who was in charge of what's called the physical plant. The facilities department. I'd never heard that term physical plant before, but apparently that's a thing. He gave the police a handwritten list of all the people who had a key to the chapel. And I just counted it a few minutes ago. There's 30 people on that list. Faculty, staff, students, maintenance workers, outside maintenance workers. So there were a ton of people who had access to this chapel pretty much whenever they wanted. Shortly after midnight, 12.15 a.m., Rob, a student, enters the chapel and goes down to a lower room in the basement. He wants to practice his sermon before he gives it in front of a class the following morning. He uses the restroom, which we note, just because it seems like at that point everything downstairs was normal. He doesn't see another student, Bong Cho, who is in the prayer chapel shortly kind of adjacent to the downstairs lecture rooms, but they both hear each other passing through. Rob leaves the chapel about an hour later, and Bong Cho remains there overnight, which was kind of a common practice for him to kind of take vigil, essentially, and pray overnight. He falls asleep a little bit, though, understandably, and hears a dragging noise upstairs. He's downstairs. He hears a dragging noise upstairs. About 4.30. About 4.30. And the presumption is that it's Elizabeth moving something around, uh, cleaning supplies or a mop bucket. Then 4.50, Bong Cho leaves by the basement exit and then walks around the building to the front. As he passes, he sees Elizabeth, kind of whistles a hello at her. Um, He perceives that she sees him. Everything seems normal. And we say all this to say that basically just before 5 a.m., this is the last time anyone saw Elizabeth McIntosh alive. So then essentially we have an hour plus where no one is in the chapel except Elizabeth. And the police say this must have been when the murder occurred. Otherwise, before, Rob or Bong Cho would have heard something. And Bong Cho saw her alive at 4.50, 5 a.m. Nothing seemed to miss. And as far as he knew, nobody else was in the building. So it's 6.20. Rob comes back to the chapel to finish studying and preparing his sermon. At the front of the building, he sees the light on and Elizabeth's coat lying on a chair in the foyer, like normal. He doesn't go in through that door. He goes around to the back and uses his key to enter in the back. He puts his things down in one of the study rooms in the basement gets a drink at the water fountain. At this time, he notices that the maintenance closet door is open, which we will come back to later. And then um, upon going back to his little study room, he locks the door behind him because he wants to focus and study. So shortly after, around 6.40, a student who we'll call John arrives. He enters a different room in the basement, for whatever reason, decides not to stay there, moves to lecture room one. He passes by the men's bathroom and notices that the door is closed, along with the supply closet door. 
He thought this was a little bit unusual because normally when he got there in the morning, Elizabeth would have still been working her way through the basement. And when she was cleaning the bathroom, she would have had the door propped open with a chair. So um, this kind of just stuck out in his mind a little bit when he thought about it later. So now it's 6.45. Um, Rob says, oh, okay, I'm done practicing, but now I have to print out all of these pages. He leaves the study room, turns off the lights, goes back upstairs, and goes to the admin building to use the printer. He sees Scott, who is the security guard and a fellow student, opening and unlocking the chapel front doors. Scott unlocks that set of doors, believes the others are already unlocked. He hears somebody exiting. This is probably Rob, but they don't see each other. So then Scott goes back through the rest of the building downstairs and is unlocking the rest of the rooms. He hears John singing. Apparently John enjoyed singing (laughs) and um, kind of filled up the basement with song in the mornings. Um, So Scott does not necessarily see John, but definitely recognizes his voice. And then Scott leaves the chapel and moves on to do the rest of his work. So then around 7.05, two more students, Wade and Nick, enter the main sanctuary. They go downstairs and go to the prayer chapel. They're um, prayer buddies, and they often pray together in the mornings before class. John hears them, but doesn't see them. So roughly at about 7.08, student Michael arrives at the chapel. Michael was Elizabeth's supervisor on the housekeeping staff. And so a lot of times in the mornings, he would go through and sort of do spot checks to make sure that things were clean. Elizabeth was, according to him, one of his more reliable cleaners. And so he didn't have to do a thorough examination, but just kind of wanted to see what was going on. And then also he wanted to meet with her that morning because... In the couple weeks previous to this, there had been sort of a, uh, what would you call it? An argument or a a vert. A A back and forth. Yeah, Yeah. sort of a back and forth in a series of memos about cleaning supplies that Elizabeth was trying to get a hold of. Michael didn't want to give her the supplies because he said they had them already and they were going back and forth about this. And so he had been putting off talking to her for a little bit about it, but this morning was going to be the morning that... They were going to talk about it, right. And he had been a little bit anxious about it, but this was going to be the morning. This will all become relevant later. He's walking through the building, and as he is down in the basement, he says the lights are on in lecture room one, and um, he's like, well, the lights don't need to be on yet. So he goes in to turn them off, but then realizes that John is in there. He says, oh, sorry, and leaves. Now, it becomes notable later that, and the police make a big deal out of the fact that Michael did not look in the bathroom to see if Elizabeth was cleaning. It's kind of like he looked every, it seems like he looked everywhere in the chapel except in the bathroom where at this moment she was laying dead. But what I would say is there's some of the discussion about how Normally, when she was cleaning in the bathroom, she would have the door propped open. And so I think it's reasonable for someone, if they're walking by and they see the door closed, to know, first of all, that she's not in there, second of all, that she's moved on. So it must have been like not very much was amiss downstairs, and it didn't seem like she was downstairs. He was kind of just moving through the building, kind of looking for her, kind of not. If he encountered her, fine. If he didn't, fine. So he's gone through the bottom of the building now. Um, 
I think one thing a, a police officer brings up at one point, though, is that it was obvious once you started looking that she hadn't finished cleaning downstairs, like the trash cans still had stuff in them. And so all that to say, if you had thought about it, it would have been obvious that she hadn't had a chance to finish everything that she should have done. Okay, so around 7.13, give or take, Michael leaves the chapel and heads over to the administration building to make coffee and do a few things in the morning before he started his cleaning. About 7.15, Rob re-enters the chapel now, having printed out his sermon and coming back to prepare. And about this time, another student named Mike, so we're going to delineate here between Michael and Mike, Mike arrives at the chapel, goes downstairs, and sets his stuff in one of the lecture rooms. Uh, in his, the report, he doesn't specify which room that was, but presumably it's the room where the class was going to be held that morning. So when Rob enters the basement, he notices that the lights are off in the lower level chapel down in the basement. So he peeks his head in real quick, and he has a brief talk with Wade and Nick. And Mike comes over and joins them, and apparently they all give Mike a hard time because he had just turned 30. Rob proceeds then upstairs, up to the sanctuary, and begins practicing his sermon. A few minutes later, about 7.24, Phil, who is an outside audiovisual worker who was going to be uh, filming the class that was happening that morning, Phil goes down into the basement of the chapel, into the room where he's going to be filming. He sets his stuff down, and about 7.25, he goes to use the restroom before he gets his morning started, and this is the first person to encounter the scene in the restroom. I was able to get in contact with Phil, and while he didn't want to be recorded, he said it was okay to share the things that we discussed. This is his description of encountering the crime scene in the bathroom. I had that eerie feeling that someone was still nearby. I felt fear. I never went all the way into the bathroom, keeping my hand on the door. I remember, with the fear, squatting down slightly to peer under the stalls to make sure that there was no one still in there. I even peeked through the hinge side of the door to make sure no one was behind the door. I backed out slowly and then noticed the open maintenance door. He sees the body, is obviously horrified, and he had heard, but not yet seen, Rob upstairs practicing his sermon. So he runs upstairs and tells Rob what he's seen. Then they both go back downstairs to the video room to call 911 because there's a phone in that room. And so the call, the original call, comes into the police as a suicide because when Phil saw it, he didn't really have time to process. He he didn't see anything except somebody dead, apparently dead, in the bathroom. And so his first thought was suicide. Phil is on the phone, and then Rob is moving kind of through the bottom of the building, I, I guess trying to tell people what's going on. He enters lecture room one, and tells John that somebody's dead in the building. Phil finishes his phone call with 911, hangs up. Phil, John, and Rob return to the restroom. Phil opens the door. John and Rob are behind him, but don't enter the restroom, and they're all looking at the scene. At this time, John asks if it's Elizabeth, and Rob says, who else could it be? I guess because the way that she was positioned on the floor of the bathroom, I think she was turned away so they couldn't see her face. It would have been obvious who it was, but they all knew, like, you know, the, the woman who would have been in the building normally early in the morning was Elizabeth. 
The reason why we're going into this detail, too, is because there was some confusion over the years of who found the body and why there was some, you know, why certain things happened immediately after. And so we're going through all of this to say, essentially, one person did find the body, but three people were there very soon after, and then they kind of scattered to try and get help. John and Rob decide that they should notify Brian Chapel, who is the vice president and the dean of faculty in 1990. So John runs to tell Brian Chapel what happened. He knocks on Brian Chapel's door, who lives in a house that's located on campus. A, l- a little ways away, yeah. John tells Brian Chapel Elizabeth has committed suicide or was murdered. And it's interesting because this is the first reference that I can find in any of the reports to anyone using the word murder. Then John runs back to the chapel, and it's a little unclear in the report whether Brian Chapel went with him or came shortly behind him. But either way, John goes back to the chapel. I would just say I think it's natural for a student to run to somebody in authority. This was the first thing he thought to do. He kind of understood that somebody else was calling 911, and so really he's going to go get help. And it's 1990. There's no cell phones. So the easiest thing to do is just who's the highest authority figure who's on campus right now that I can get a hold of. Who has a phone with a landline. Right. Because while John was running to physically tell Brian Chapel, Rob was trying to call Paul Koistra, who is the president of the seminary, uh, using the same phone that Phil called 911 on, but Rob was unable to reach Paul at that time. After Rob hangs up the phone, he can't get a hold of the president. He proceeds back upstairs to the main level of the chapel, and he just stands around waiting for the police because he said he didn't really know what else to do at that point. And Phil, the AV tech, um, then encounters Professor Gerard Van Groningen, who had his son Charles along, and he tells them that something terrible has happened in the bathroom. Here's Charles Van Groningen who happened to be there that day to watch his father's morning lecture. Dad was setting his things up at the podium, and a young man came running in, very distraught, and said, Dr. Van Groningen, Dr. Van Groningen, please come. Something has happened in the bathroom. We walked to very short distance to the bathroom, and my father and this young gentleman uh, went and saw a body that was half in and half out of the stall in the men's bathroom. It was a female body, but they was in the men's bathroom. And I remember having a black cord around her neck. I did not approach the body itself. My father did with the young man. And at that point, he indicated that he knew her very well and that she was dead. I stayed at the door of the bathroom, not going all the way in. And that's where my memory kind of ends at that scene. Phil told me that he remembered Dr. Van Groningen's loud lament. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. That was the first time that Phil heard her name. He said Dr. Van Groningen was distraught. At about the same time, other students were starting to arrive at the chapel for class. I spoke with one of those students named Ed. Coincidentally, I went to church with Ed when I was a kid, although I don't remember it. And he was the very first person I ever interviewed for this series. I had a class that morning, and as usual, I was running late. 
so I was in a little bit of a rush. You know, I wasn't going to be late for the class. I was going to be right on time. You, you know what I mean? The last minute,、uh, you know. So I probably—I'm not sure—I probably had a class at 7:30, you, you know, if I had to guess, and I was running late. And there were several students going into that building at the same time, and I was not the first. I seem to remember that there might have been two people ahead of me and one person behind me. And、uh, so the two people ahead of me got there early enough that they didn't have to hold the door for me. You, you know what I mean? I was just far enough behind that. They wouldn't have held held the door open for me, but as I went and reached for the door and started to go in, they came out and said, "Hey guys, this building is closed. Classes are canceled for today. We weren't given any more details, but there is a lady laying on the ground. She might be okay, but she's motionless, and and so the the clear understanding was that's why the building was closed. You know." So something had clearly happened. I don't think police had arrived yet, because I didn't see any emergency vehicles. And the person that went in first may have said they were, you know, trying to help her or whatever. But、um, but I don't think the police had arrived. Before we spoke, I didn't give Ed any of the specifics, but his story lines up perfectly. Phil called nine one one at seven twenty five. And the fire department paramedics responded at 7:31, so that's not a bad memory after 33 years. Now we're going to transition from Ruth and I describing the scene to two of the officers that were actually there that morning, and one of them you're already familiar with. George Hodak. I was with the Crevecourt Police Department for almost 34 years. Started as a patrolman, detective, and then. Lieutenant in charge of investigations, and then which that I, how I got back into the homicide, and then captain retired as a captain in charge of patrol. So you spent your whole career with Creve Corps, then? Yeah, until I retired, and then I went kind of work as a police officer for a college,、mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where you met Andrew Stout. Yes, that's exactly correct. Where he was a librarian there. And I told him the story about this, and I guess that's what got to hot Kyle and then to you. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of weird, but yeah. As a reminder, you heard from Andrew and Kyle in the first episode. They're my high school friends that got connected to Hodak around 2017, and then introduced me to Elizabeth's case. Name's Dennis Borey. I was with Creve Corps for 36 years.、Uh, I started with them as a dispatcher, then became a patrolman. Then became a detective, went on back on patrol as a sergeant, and then went back into investigations as sergeant. And then that's when we had the the murder, and we were both in investigations at that time. And then both of us retired as captains. We had received a call that was brought in as a、uh, suicide at the seminary, and then、uh, we had officers go down, responded, and when the first officer arrived. They pretty well determined it wasn't a suicide, so they ended up contacting the department, and we had、uh, three or four detectives on at that time, and we all responded. When we got down there,、uh, Sergeant Bailey at that time he was a sergeant. He also retired as a captain. He was running it along with at that time Lieutenant Harris, who was in charge at the time, and they brought me down to photograph the scenes.、It、was a nasty crime scene. 
Sergeant Bailey at the time we went through and he said, here's what I want you to take some photographs of. And where, where it initially started was in a classroom where the first attack took place. And then we photographed all the way into the, uh, into the restroom. And initially that there was some speculation that was an outside person who committed it. But we just didn't think it was. Uh, if it had been an, uh, somebody who was trying to do a burglary, they may have found a door open. But burglars don't want to really confront anyone. And if they do confront you by accident, they'll try to run away. And if there was an assault, that's a little unusual for a burglar. It doesn't not to say it doesn't happen, but it's a little unusual. And then after we got into it more and, and uh, looking at her, her timeline, and we determined initially that uh, this is a homicide. Before we go any further, you should know that you're about to hear some pretty graphic descriptions of the crime scene and what happened to Elizabeth. While we very much do not want this to be just another true crime podcast, we do think it's important to convey at least some of the details of what happened. Here's Ruth explaining a little bit more about that. We share all this first because it's important for the police investigation as they figure out what they think happened. And then, of course, who they think did it. So we're explaining it for that reason. I would also say we're explaining it not to be like graphic in and of itself. But part of this story is that because no information was released, a lot of Covenant people did not realize how brutal it was. And, for example, like when we tell people, oh, there was a lot of blood, that's news to them. And so we share this in part because people have never heard before how awful it was. And to try and kind of give a sense of the gravity of this not being an accident, this was a horrible, nasty, brutal scene. And it's important for the sake of respecting Elizabeth's memory to at least share a little bit of that. And then also out of respect for her, we're not going to share everything. So with that in mind, If you don't want to hear those details, you can skip ahead about four and a half minutes. After Dennis Sporey took photographs of the crime scene, Sergeant Dale Bailey walked through the scene again with a video camera, documenting as much of the evidence as he could. Body was lying face down, slightly turned, the right shoulder just touching the leg of the second stall. Cord that was tied around her throat extended up over the top and then was secured between the first stall and the second stall on the brace. View inside the stall shows a chair in the position that you see it now. As you can tell, there's quite a bit of blood. Source of the blood being determined at two small holes in the throat. Had either of you guys ever encountered a crime scene like this before? I did a lot of the autopsy reports, and uh, I used to go over to the medical examiner and I'd take photographs for some of the autopsies. But this one was, I've taken on a couple different murders, but hers seemed to be the most brutal. The autopsy was rather, uh, was rather disturbing because of the, that's when you were able to really see how she was brutalized. She had broken fingers. Bruises, Bruises, contusions. Uh, right in here, like she was, you know. Somebody's manhandling, manhandling her. her. Yeah. That was on her 
upper arms, yeah. And that doesn't that that bodes closer to a blitz attack than, you know, you know, somebody staying there and beating her and dragging her and all that. That's not that's personal. There's some speculation as to what occurred, but she initially was in a we think that uh, she was initially in this one classroom. That's where the attack started. There was hair in there. There was a, her earring and backing of her earring. And then uh, it went into the... Video cord. Yeah, the video cord was taken from the... TV cart. TV cart. Yeah, thank you. The TV cart in there. And it's, we don't, we're not as speculation as to whether it was taken at that time and she was drugged into the bathroom or she was drugged into the bathroom and went back at the cord. Uh, I've always pretty well maintained that I think he, whoever was doing this, was trying to make it look like it was going to be a suicide initially. And then things may have gotten out of hand, and uh, whatever he was cut with the uh, the cord with is what he probably or she used to, to stab Elizabeth. But the way she was brought in there, I think that she went, and we, there's different speculations, uh, theories. I think she was attacked in that one room. I think that the person grabbed her by the hair and maybe grabbed her by the hair and an arm and started dragging her in. The chair that she was sitting on in the bathroom, which she would normally use that to prop that bathroom door. It was a men's bathroom, not the ladies' bathroom. It was a men's bathroom. She'd prop it open. And there's some speculation as to how they got into the stall. I think she was put into the stall, drug into the bathroom, put into the stall over the toilet, and then was going to try to prop her up with the, with the cord. And then... She ended up fighting. Maybe, maybe she was unconscious, came, became conscious, or started to struggle, and that's when the perpetrator stabbed her. She got beaten pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. She was bruised all over the place. So there was a lot of going on in that room and in the bathroom. And in the bathroom, we also found hair, her hair, on the floor. And uh, so there was some... She was assaulted fairly well. I mean, started in one room, continued in the bathroom. And there was a struggle going on in the toilet stall. Hit her head, bring her back up, and she may have had been conscious or unconscious at the time. Uh, but after she was stabbed, I believe she probably became conscious again and then tried to get out and, and fell forward. And may have, uh, because of the blood that was in there, may have slipped on the blood and then fell forward and she was being strangled by, by the cord that was tied to the top of the stall. Now she was about two inches off the ground correct yeah her yeah and it, the cord was tight to the bracket mm-hmm. and she strangled the right. cause of death was strangulation but she would have according to the coroner she would have bled, bled to death she would have bled out but yeah. she strangled first we're talking today because we want to remember elizabeth mcintosh who she was and the wickedness of her being murdered. That's Jerem Bars, who you heard at the beginning of episode one. He was a professor at Covenant for more than 30 years, and he had Elizabeth as a student in 1990. Starting with Jerem, we're going to hear from some of the people who were on campus that morning, and each of them knew Elizabeth. You'll hear from all of them again in a future episode when they talk about their relationships with her, But for now, they're just going to talk about the morning of March 26th, 1990. Well, I came back from breakfast. I was having breakfast with a guy named Brian Teal. So I was briefly on the campus and then went off to have breakfast with him. I came back 
I ran immediately when I got out of my car into Skip Dusenberry, who was a student at the time who would have known Elizabeth very well. And he was a dear friend and he was weeping. They were members of Providence Skip and his wife Bonnie and their children. But Skip was weeping and told me Elizabeth had been murdered and had been discovered by George Van Groningen when he went to the men's room. And he was just appalled by it, just shocked to the core. Here's Charles Van Groningen, who drove his dad home after the police arrived. Driving my dad home, he was not able to drive at that point. He was very distraught. So I drove him home, and I'm sure it was an hour, two hours. I don't know how much longer. I know that police had come to the scene, and there was an investigation and all the things that went through that. I remember having to walk him from the car to the house, bringing him to the living room where he collapsed into his lazy boy, at which time we then just started telling the sequence of events to my mom and to my wife, who was also there at the time. The biggest recollection I have is how thankful I was that I was able to be there with my dad that day and the emotional support that I was for him. It was traumatic to see a murdered body for me, but having never met the person before, um, I cannot imagine the, the difference it was that dad knew her, Elizabeth, very well. And the, the emotional toll it took on him that day was a lot. Jerem mentioned finding out about Elizabeth's death from a student, Skip Dusenberry. When we spoke to Skip and his wife Bonnie, he didn't specifically remember that interaction, but they both had a general sense of what that morning was like. I remember driving onto campus and have, what I remember is the impression, whoa, what's going on here? Something has happened. I don't... Police cars. Police cars, and it was not the usual Monday morning routine, and... Um, I must have parked, gotten out and asked, and somebody, I don't remember who told me, but in asking, I you know, was told that Elizabeth had been killed. I'm sure I was told that it was in the chapel somewhere. It's, I remember Skip calling right away. It had to have been from a phone at the seminary because we had no cell phones. And, um, you know, I mean, we both couldn't believe it. It's It seemed so unreal. Because we had dropped her off the night before, right. after church, right. you know, and so... I remember she would talk about cleaning the church early in the morning, but she never referenced any apprehension about being alone in the chapel by herself or anything like that. But Skip came right home. Classes were canceled and everything, so... Uh, I mean, again, all I remember, and it's just a general impression, just driving on the campus in this sense of, you know, something's happened, and then finding out, but as I said, I can't even tell you who would have told me, and I don't I don't remember talking to Jerem, but I'm sorry, but that's pretty typical. That's what I gave you the proviso at the beginning that my memory for those kinds of things is it's just not very good to me. My name's Chris Baker. I Alias. grew up... Alias. <laughs> Alias Carl C. Baker Jr. Yes, that probably would help, wouldn't it? I've gone by Chris for I don't know how long. That's Chris's wife, Marilyn, you heard there. I interviewed them together, like Skip and Bonnie, and they have a pretty adorable dynamic that you'll hear more of another time. 
I was walking into the library in the morning. It was, this was Monday morning. Walking into the library, and there is police tape. And I thought, what in the world is this? And I walked in, and I asked a couple of people, and they said, the police found something. And that was kind of the extent of it for a bit. We stood outside, we looked at the building, we didn't see anything going on, we didn't see anything being carried out. So I thought, I could use this time to study. And I think, did I come back home or did I call you? I was at work and you called me. and I. So I must I, have come back home to call you. We didn't have cell phones at the time. No, you called me at work and I don't, it seemed like it was around 11-ish, noon-ish. Yeah, that sounds you called about me. right. So how did you find out? How did you, what was, uh, did well, someone come over to the apartment? Wait, all I recall saying is that something happened, the police are there and so on. But I don't know that we had any say, clear okay. idea right at that time that, there, that Elizabeth had been murdered. I don't even know if we, I can't really say that at that time I knew that someone had died. Only that the police were there and they were checking things out. And that was the end of it. It was it was that vague. I can't say that I learned that it was Elizabeth until even later in the day. Because you definitely called me later then at work. I was still at work. I really don't remember how I found out it was Elizabeth. Do you remember him telling you that it was Elizabeth? He called me on the phone to tell me that. It, I'm, I'm positive you called me at some point to say, well, it's Elizabeth. Because I think I either broke down at my desk or I came home one or the other. Well, both, maybe. So by now, it's mid-morning on the day of the murder. Some police are already on the scene, but more continue to arrive, including Detective George Hodak. I wasn't there initially. I had come in about 9 or 10 o'clock or something like that. But as soon as I came in, they said, go down there and help them. And there were other officers there. Then, of course, the St. Louis County Crime Scene Unit showed up, too. And, and then they took additional they photos. They took photos and fingerprint. And uh, the sink, trying to get blood out of the sink, but uh, EMTs had uh, washed their hands or something in it and kind of fouled that. I don't think they knew. <laughs> because it had been called in as a suicide, they thought it was like an They responded well, to it, and yeah, they thought it was suicide, but, but when they got down there... But, but like back in the 90s, there wasn't that much emphasis on the EMTs about helping preserve the crime scene. Now, they're probably all trained in it, I don't know. But back then, that wasn't their focus. Their focus was to try to save the person's life. And, and they guess, checked to see if there yeah, was life, and, and when there wasn't any, that's yeah, when they, they washed, washed their, hands. their hands. And so that got to be a little bit of a mess. On that particular day, that morning, uh, like I said, George came in at 10, and I want to say it was right after George came in that Lieutenant Harris at the time uh, said we need to, we couldn't have a suspect. We didn't see anywhere where anyone broke into the building. So that's when they called out Major K Squad. And then you have 20 detectives uh, from various municipalities verge onto the campus, and then they we, we have a command center, and then we get orders from the uh, commander at that time as to what we think we need to do. They would get in a you know, we'd all be in a big, giant room, assembly room, if you will. And the commander is not from Creve Corps, but Major K Squad's made up of, like Danny said, different detectives from area to police departments. Kind of the idea is to throw everything at it as fast as you can. And the commander then 
has an assistant and they start giving out what they call leads. Okay, so lead number one would be, well, you had teams, teams, two guys apiece. And let's just say me and Denny were a team. He'd say, lead number one, contact uh, you know, the head of the- Paul Kreisler. Paul Kreisler, contact him. Spory and Hodak, go contact him, see what they know. Lead number two, contact uh, Chapel. person, Chapel there or whatever. So he'd, he'd send out the leads and uh, whatever developed from those leads, you brought back and then he made those into more leads. So if you look at the report, that's why there's all those different lead sheets, different detectives doing different things who come back <laughs> and supposedly say what happened. And then from that, they get another one like, okay, this guy said this guy was on campus at the time. Okay, go talk to him. Hodak and Spory talk to him. So that's kind of how it runs. Part of the problem, and I don't, I don't worry about casting too many aspersions, <laughs> but part of the problem is you get what they send you. Okay, so if some detective from Bug Tussle is terrible, they might send him. And then he's the guy who supposedly writes the report and does a half-ass job. <laughs> and so you never really know what you get. If you get a good detective, you know, it's like you might lean on him a little bit more than some of the other guys who just want a free lunch. For anybody listening under the age of about 65, Bug Tussle is the fictional town in Arkansas that the Beverly Hillbillies were from. I pride myself on my pop culture knowledge, but even I had to look that one up. We had several suspects at the end of the first day and was trying to weed through their statement and the timeline. And then you have to consider motive opportunity. Yeah. And what, what the, why would they do something like this? So you've got to look at those factors. And there was nobody on that list that we could verify had any personal issues with Elizabeth. There was nothing substantial. What was substantial was the main suspect <laughs> being mad at her. You mentioned uh, she had a temper. Uh, sometimes she would become angry, lose it, or whatever. How about you? What kind of temperament do you have? I guess at this point I was... Is this still for establishing baseline? I guess I just wonder sometimes if I'm asking some of these questions. Is this, this is all valid then? Or this is still used against me. Pretty early in the day, detectives were starting to become suspicious of one man on campus, Elizabeth's fellow student and supervisor on the house cleaning staff, Michael. He's the one that was in the chapel that morning looking for her. We'll look at what caught the attention of the police, what they did about it, and a tactical error that still haunts them to this day. Next time. True Believer is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and executive produced by TJ Ingracia. Co-written and co-produced by Ruth Servan-Smith. Research and development by Kyle Hackman and Doug Servan. Visit truebeliverpodcast.com to see additional materials related to each episode or to get in touch with us. If you're someone who knew Elizabeth or have any information related to her or her murder, we'd love to hear from you. Next time on True Believer. This one suspect had his Bible with him. It was a crutch for him because he would keep his hand on her. He would touch it like this and when you're in an investigation you're learning how to interview people you look for those little cues every investigation has a mistake because you weren't there you're just trying to piece things together you can't possibly get everything right 
as I understand it, the police just can't, one of the problems the police have is they can't come up with a motive for anything. And with me, at least they have something that looks like a motive. I was there in the building that morning and things of that nature. You take refuge in the notion it has to be somebody from outside. But you know that's not true, even if you sort of vaguely hope it is. It has to be somebody who knew her here, one of our students. Mm-hmm.